Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you coming. I realize uh, there's other news of the day and other hearings going on that uh, might seem more important to this one, but not to us here at the American Security Project. For those not familiar with the American Security Project, we were founded in 2005 by Senators Kerry, Hagel, Hart, and Rudman. And the intent back then was that coming off the 2004 election, uh, Senator Kerry was not pleased when he brought up various topics like climate change, uh, asymmetric operations, energy security, among others, that, that he, he got painted as somewhat the left-wing liberal that he is. And uh, so he thought maybe he could put together a bipartisan board, as you can tell, two Republicans, two Democrats, to, to start the organization. But then he would get eight flag officers, three and four star, two recently retired from each, two from each service recently retired, uh, who could speak to these issues from uh, almost purely a national security perspective and use them as the spokespeople for the organization. And, and, and he did that. And I'm proud to say that many of them are still on our board today. Um, and, and we're excited about that. The likes of, for instance, Admiral Fallon, who was the Central Command Commander uh, Lester Lyles, the current chairman of USAA, are just two of the many. Um, so I got started with the organization shortly after that when I was asked to come on board. Tony Zinni was one of our board members. He dropped out to become CEO of a, a defense company, and I was a last-minute hire to come on board. And then in 2011, I was asked to become the CEO, and, and I've stayed with it ever since. Uh, we cover a number of topics, as I mentioned, energy security, not, nuclear proliferation is a big one for us, um, public diplomacy, uh, among others. Uh, but we are now dabbling a little bit into the obesity side and the recruiting perspective on its effects on national security here in the United States. Uh, it's a great topic. It's a good one for me. Uh, I personally am very intimate with the issue. Having spent nine years in the boot camp side of the house and recruiting side of the house, my last job was a dual hat. Uh, I was the commanding general of the Eastern Recruiting Region for the United States Marine Corps, which is everything uh, east of the Mississippi, where we brought in about 22,000 uh, young men and women a year. And then I had three previous tours at the Recruit Depot in San Diego, uh, running recruit training there, uh, all the way up from the company level to the regimental command level. Uh, it gives me an interesting perspective because I started in the mid-70s, then I did it in the 80s, the 90s, and again in, after 2000. Uh, we've got a wonderful panel today. Uh, to my right sits General Steve Zanakis, and he's a dual hit for us because his 28 years of active service and retiring as an Army Brigadier General, and plus that, he's a doctor. Uh, he's also an, today an adjunct clinical professor at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. He's also a senior advisor to the Department of Defense on neurobehavioral conditions and medical management, if I've got that right, Steve. Um, so from our perspective, he can give you a medical side on the obesity and give you the Army perspective as well. And to his right is Dr. Glenn Stetton, and I'm proud to say Express Scripts has helped us out and helped sponsor this event. He's the chief innovation officer, if I've got that right, Glenn, for Express Scripts. Uh, he got his bachelor's and medical degrees at Lehigh and the Medical College of Pennsylvania. He completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. So Glenn, we're uh, thrilled that you're here and I appreciate you coming up from uh, St. Louis. Um, you've probably read the paper that we put out on obesity and national security meeting recruiting challenge. Uh, what kind of spurred me on this was last January and February is when they were working on the National Defense Authorization Act. They they decided to up the end strength of the Army somewhat significantly, at least in my opinion, and somewhat the other services as well. And their recruiting quota increased dramatically, and if I recall correctly, to almost 86,000 per year, which is roughly double what the Marine Corps' recruiting quota was. Uh, for those familiar with the recruiting side of the house, you just don't instantaneously up the end strength of a service and overnight recruit 86,000 men and women to come into the service. It, it takes not just months, it takes years. And it's a lot of very, very hard work. Marine Corps learned this lesson in the mid-70s. Uh, I was running a company in recruit training in 75 and 76. The draft had just ended. Uh, and I, I hate to uh, cast any dispersion on those who came in at that time, but we're taking virtually anybody who could walk and talk simultaneously. 
it, it was a bad time for the Marine Corps. We got a new commandant then named General Lou Wilson, decided, he said, the quality of the Corps has, has decreased dramatically. Um, if we have to, we won't meet our quota, but we'll increase the quality. So we'll, we'll look at who we're bringing in, make sure they're qualified, both not just physically, but morally and mentally as well. In other words, high school diploma, high school graduates, uh, those without a, a legal trail behind them, i.e. convicted felons, those who didn't have a history of drug use, and we clamped down hard on that. It was really tough on the recruiting side of the house, but it worked. And I saw the quality of the force increase, increased dramatically during the late 70s and into the 80s. Of course, uh, President Reagan came in, the DOD budget expanded dramatically, the pay and allowances became much better for the military, and recruiting became, I won't say easier, uh, but it became a better job as it was. And the same thing happened through the 90s and it carried through to the 2000s. I will tell you statistically, the men and women that serve today are miles better than what we had in the, in the mid-70s. And take whatever statistic you want to use, whether it was physical or mental. Today, 99% plus are diplomat high school graduates. So that's really the, one of the first requirements when a young man or woman walks into the door to recruit them. Uh, secondly, you look at the legal side of the house. Uh, we, I can remember a time when we would routinely waive felonies. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, we would routinely waive uh, immense drug use. We don't do that anymore either. Uh, and then I'll cut to the last one and cut to the chase of the topic today, those who were obese. And there is an inventory strength test in the Marines to come in. It comprises pull-ups, sit-ups, and a, and a mile and a half run. Um, sadly, one of the hardest parts for most men and women is the dead hang pull-ups. It takes two dead hang pull-ups to pass that inventory strength test. Uh, and many of our youth today cannot pass that test. So when you add all those factors together, some would say, and I know uh, we have a mission readiness rep here today, do we not? Yes, oh, thank you for coming, because this is their topic. I'm treading on your turf. The, uh, but upwards of 70% of the youth between 18 and 24 are unqualified to join military service today. 70%. So that recruiter that's on the street down at the recruiting substation who's got to get a couple of contracts a month, and I was telling Glenn earlier, the average recruiter probably has to contact upwards of 100 qualified applicants just to get one to sign a contract. Most of those recruiters are on quota that have to get two contracts a month, just two. But to get the two, they've got to talk to 200 people. So do the math. They're on the phone and they're out talking to a lot of folks a lot of the time. But the problem is when 70% of them are unqualified right off the bat, it becomes an increasingly difficult job. And the obesity side of the house encroaches on that whole territory. Roughly 30 plus percent of the youth today in that same age bracket are, are categorized as obese. They're not gonna be able to join the service. So in essence, what happens then, of course, the recruiter becomes desperate. And so he gets a young lad in there who's obese, sometimes grotesquely obese. He starts his own physical fitness program and his weight control program. Uh, technically, those are legal. There are uh, regulations for that. They start their own physical fitness program. Of course, the hard part is getting them to adhere to it and lose the requisite weight to get them under the standards so that they can join the military service. Um, it's, it's a tough business. And then when you look at the habits of our youth today and the habits of all of us, frankly, the eating habits, our, our social habits, the, all the social media stuff that's going on today that contributes to obesity, and it, and it just becomes a very, very difficult challenge. Um, I will tell you, when you read our report, we, we have a number of recommendations in there that in some cases are different from what some other reports have. And I, and I, and I lean on this because one of our recommendations is expanding junior reserve officer training corps units nationwide. And I do this out of personal experience. I ran one of the largest JROTC units that the Marine Corps has, if not the largest, uh, in the United States when I was the president and CEO of the Marine Military Academy in Harlingen, Texas from 2006 to 2011. Every member of the student body was a member of the Marine JROTC, and we had roughly 250 to 300 young men that were there every year. Physical fitness played an important part of our daily routine there. Not only did we start it every day with physical fitness, but when school let out at three o'clock, every one of them went to some kind of a sport. So they were getting a minimum of 60 minutes of physical fitnesses today, which is what is recommended, uh, and, and then some, and it, and it worked. 
and I'll not lie to you, most of those kids were not coming to us to join the Marine Corps. Most were coming to join, to go to college afterwards. But we had our fair share of obese young men, uh, a lot of them. And, and I believe we were pretty successful in the program. I mentioned the JROTC side of the house because my personal opinion is they could be immensely expanded nationwide. There's only a small start of them. And they're, the JROTCs, if you're familiar, are, are funded dual track. They're funded partially by the federal government, but a lot of times they're funded by the states or the high schools themselves. In most cases, the federal government, at least in terms of the Marine Corps JROTC, will pay for the instructor and pay that person's salary at the school and provide some uniform support and, and that type of thing, whereas the school would have to provide the rest of that. But I think that that program could be expanded greatly to at least get many more young men and women involved in the physical fitness side of the house. Um, there's no doubt in my opinion that our, our youth of today are not as fit as they should be. The social media thing, I touched on it, uh, and I think, Glenn, you might have some comments about this, but uh, I ride the metro to work. Everybody's standing there reading their iPhone. Uh, young kids are no different today. They're spending not just an hour or two. They're spending many, many hours behind that computer screen, sedentary, not getting any kind of uh, exercise that they should get. Diet plays a, a big part in this, uh, along with nutrition programs, and I know Mission Readiness has been really big on this over the years, that um, the, the diet side of the house needs to be improved. There need to be supplements. There needs to be school diet programs to eat a healthy diet, not contribute to the obesity standards that we have today with the, with the young men and women. So um, with that, I'm going to lateral over to Steve, and you can talk a little bit, I think, about the Army perspective. And, uh, and then you'll, we'll forward on to Glenn. Sure, thank you, and uh, thanks for coming and uh, listening to us today. And thanks to Express Strips uh, for uh, putting some resources to this. Uh, I think it's vitally important uh, in many ways um, in that for our, our country at large, the military is a microcosm uh, of our communities. And what we do here and what we see here is really informs us of what's going on uh, across the board. And so I think what we're talking about is something that we also should be paying attention uh, in our schools and in our families and in our neighborhoods. Um, let me just speak a bit to what this means for our, our soldiers and our Marine Corps and our services and our readiness because at the heart of our military, at, at its capability, at what distinguishes us is our people. And uh, no matter what, we've got great weapons and we've got you know, very smart people with strategies, but it all comes down to our people and their attitudes and their commitment and their ability to do their job. Uh, one of the most rewarding aspects of being a career military physician is to understand that what, what as, a, as an army doctor, what you do has a much broader impact. I mean, it's not just seeing patients in a clinic. Uh, it really is at the heart of what we think of as public health. Uh, you're, we are out there and we're working with our line commanders and our, we're working with our leaders to ensure that our soldiers and Marines and sailors and their families are as fit and as committed as they can be because they feel healthy. Now, here's a, let me just sort of weave into this. I'm also a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And you say, well, why would the Army want someone like that? Well, because, in fact, we recruit 18-year-olds. And, uh, um, what, 40% of the force, maybe more, is between 18 and 25? And uh, they're, so they're older adolescents and young adults. And these people are living with all the issues that you may or may not remember when you were that age. Uh, it's getting harder for me to remember. Uh, and uh, what our kids were living with. And as you know, I mean, it's, it is a very chaotic time in people's lives. But I think the Greeks, I'll take 
credit for my heritage. I think the Greeks had it right, uh, mind, body, soul, because it all does blend. And I know that the really good commanders that I worked for understood that the soldiers who felt good about how they looked and how fit they were were better at doing their jobs. They were more disciplined, they were smarter about doing that, and they were more committed. So it may seem odd, but across the spectrum of all the military specialties, what we call the MOSs, feeling fit and healthy is fundamental. Now we found that out. I got commissioned in 1970. So I was at the tail end of the draft army, was, was you know, very much immersed in it from about 75 to 82, when we really were in a trough. I mean, you, it was really, really hard. And it wasn't until the Reagan buildup that we were able to now, in fact, up our standard and up our game when it came to the volunteer army. And it was very hard. And we were bringing in people, and recruiters were having an incredibly difficult time, and we had some real disasters at that time. We don't want that now. We want to be able to bring the best Americans, and we want to bring them across the whole mosaic of the American population that we can. So we want to have everyone that wants to be on, wants to serve, be able to do that, and fundamental to that, because they're young people, is how they feel fit. Now, I'll tell you the, la la the last vignette here that really brings this to mind and why this is important. In 2009, I was asked by the chairman and to go to Fort Carson, Colorado. If you all remember, we were having at that time a, uh, a really bad set of events. We had some murders. We had some suicides. I mean, it, it, was, it was tragic. I decided to do this in a kind of typical public health way and spent a lot of time out with the units and talked to a, a number of squad leaders and platoon sergeants to the frontline folks. And the squad leaders, everything really, I mean, it's an inverted pyramid. And the military, the way it functions, is, you know, that, that squad leader, who's the person who's got the 8, 10, 12 soldiers or Marines going out, you know, when it comes to the readiness, the fitness, and the capability of those fighters, war fighters, it falls on onto that squad leader. And, and everything, I mean, they're spending 12, 14 hours a day, every day. A lot of them have de been deployed a couple, by 2009 a couple times themselves. They were struggling keeping their heads above water. And they said, and we were bringing in people by 07, we had, a, we had a problem with recruitment. And we, were, we didn't really, we, we said we didn't lower the standards, but God bless the recruiters, uh, we fudged. And the squad leaders would say, I, I'm just, I can't believe it. I've got guys who aren't fit. I'm gonna send them out there in the hills. I can't rely on them. And somebody else is gonna get killed. And it was a really hard time for everybody. So the, the takeaway is this, that it is a, the country at large, I believe, needs to pay attention to this for all the reasons we talk about. So our families and communities are healthy. And you know, you've seen all the stories downstream when you've got obesity and overweight, all the medical problems are just going to accumulate are just going to pile up. But it's also an issue that we want to have a whole population, a whole cohort from which we can recruit the Americans who want to serve very across the spectrum of all the various groups here that are Americans. So this is really important. It's not sexy, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that's going to get perhaps in the news and hearings in the Senate, but it's fundamental. 
You feel good. You feel healthy. Your kids feel good. They feel healthy. Everybody does better. And that's the lesson here, and that's the takeaway. So, Cliff. Sure, so thank you. So at Express Scripts, we have the privilege of providing the pharmacy program for the Department of Defense. And uh, our, uh, just from a standpoint of the, the, the kinds of illness and cost of obesity, particularly, you know, not just with regard to our recruiting population, but as our whole population ages, as the Department of Defense um, retirees and others, you know, the burdens of obesity don't just, you know, just, don't just come from recruiting, but specifically as it relates to recruiting, we all want um, the best people who love our country to be able to serve, um, not just the best, thinnest people to be able to serve. And if we want to increase the pool of people who are qualified, we really have to do something about it. Um, there's a lot of discussion so far a bit about um, physical activity and the issues with sedentary lifestyle. I just make the point that nutrition, food, calories are the bigger issue. Um, you can undo a whole hour's worth of exercise with a brownie or a piece of cake. Um, and if we are not doing things with children um, in the schools for healthy eating, things that have been shown to work, right? So if you have school breakfast and school lunch programs, if you only have low sugar, low carbohydrate, um, healthy foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, kids will choose them and they will eat them, um, as opposed to um, biscuits and bacon, things that you know, maybe we, we, we like and are more attractive, but it's a, it's a whole focus on diet um, and how to get people to eat healthier in addition to the physical activity. Um, the other point I would make, you talked about um, social media and people you know, obsessed with their phones as part of the issue with sedentary lifestyle. I'd also point out that there's an opportunity, right? People are not going to give up their phones. They're not going to give up their social media, but there's an opportunity to leverage it and think differently about it, about how to activate people and to get them engaged um, and to get them engaged in physical activity um, in their community, to get them engaged, again, about um, healthier diet and getting uh, education and nutritional information out there. So some of the things that we think that may be part of the problem we may actually be able to use to activate the young people um, into getting them more fit. And uh, again, I just go back to um, it's the calories stupid. Um, and if we can help people get the right calories in their body and fewer of them, um, we'll figure this out. Thank you. I, I, uh, I am the beneficiary of Express Script service to the DOD and have been for half a century. So. I uh, appreciate what you do for us, and, and, and it's a good thing. I can't emphasize enough how much this is a national security issue. When you cannot man the force uh, with the people you need to man them, and they can't deploy. And it's not approached from that perspective a lot of times on Capitol Hill, nor is it brought that way when the chairman or the service chiefs go up there and talk. Um, if you can't man the force, we can't deploy them, we can't defend ourselves. I mean, it's, it's a very simple equation. Um, but it's just not gotten the notoriety that it needs to get. And the other part of this, and I, and I, and I, I know I'm a recruiter, uh, big recruiter supporter, uh, that's one of the toughest jobs in the Marine Corps, certainly in the Army as well. I well remember in the 70s and 80s when uh, every Marine enlisted has to do what we call a B billet. So after your initial enlistment, if you're going to stay, you're either going to go on recruiting duty, drill instructor duty, or embassy duty. Now, of those three, which do you think got chosen the most? Embassy duty. Uh, so that's, and that one is highly selective. They're highly trained. Uh, and it's not that big a specialty. Whereas DI duty or recruiting duty, uh, just to give you an example, I had 600 drill instructors at Paris Island, and I had about the equivalent number, 600 plus, that were uh, on recruiting duty. So of those, most would gravitate to being the DI because they emulated the DI. They really didn't want to go on recruiting duty, recognizing how strenuous and hard it was. Now, we trained them and gave them a lot of assistance and then put them on quota, or put what we call mission. Uh, then the stark reality hit them. Uh, here they're walking into a high school. It's got 70% of the young men and women are unqualified right off the top. So they got to find that 30% and then find out if they're physically fit, and then try to enlist them, and, and, and it becomes just an extremely difficult task. Uh, 
so my heart goes out to all of them, and especially those in the Army. When you're trying to recruit 86,000 a year, that, that, that is a tremendous task, a, a very hard one. And you're competing with the other services as well. And I'm sure I'll tell you one last anecdotal story. If you go into a, a recruiting substation anywhere in the United States, most of them are in a strip mall. And most of them are co-located, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and sometimes Coast Guard. Um, and that's a money-saving issue. And what happens, of course, a lot of times is a young lad will go in there and he'll, he'll stop in the Air Force booth and say, what, what can you do for me today? And uh, the Air Force recruiter will say, well, we've got these benefits. You can, you know, we'll give you college tuition. Uh, perhaps, depending on your MOS, we'll give you a bonus. And he thinks about that, and then he moves over to the uh, Navy recruiter who has something similar, talks about seeing the world going out on ships. And then he, and then he goes to the Army recruiter, and he says, hey, you know, be strong, hua, this is the Army, dedication, physical fitness. Then he goes to the Marine recruiter, and Marine recruiter says, I'm not giving you anything, prove you can be a Marine first. And, and, and they go, well, what do you mean? And he says, get on the pull-up bar, and when they can't do the pull-ups, uh, he says, don't come, you know, come back when you can do two pull-ups. Now, I'm exaggerating here, but, but not too much uh, in that regard because the Marines pride themselves on having higher standards. But nonetheless, it's a difficult task for those recruiters. Um, Steve, I'll, go, I'll lateral over to you again on the medical side of the house. The, uh, I know we mentioned in, it in our paper that even those who get recruited and pass the fitness test, graduate from boot camp, go to their MOS, and then stay through their first enlistment, the obesity rates are increasing among the active duty. And, and that's another sad case there, too. It's, it's, it's not a huge number, but nonetheless, we've seen a gradual increase there. So the services are having to work on those that are in act, on active duty now on weight reduction programs. Of course, one of the beauties to having them in the military services, we can control the food in the mess halls uh, somewhat. Uh, we can control what's going in theoretically to the MREs, uh, although the MREs are just packed with calories. Um, what Have you noticed that trend uh, in your dealings with the Army in the last 10 years? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we've seen this gradual increase, and there's, uh, and of course, uh, it's complicated by the multiple deployments and the opportunities that these people have uh, in the environment that they're in where they say, look, I, I just can't exercise the way I could before. Um, and uh, it's over time, it, 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 the mentality that comes from it, though, I mean, it, people say, well, we're going to relax the standard a little bit. And then that, and that has an implications for, well, which you start relaxing other standards. So uh, I think there's uh, now a recognition of that, and we're going to get back to we're uh, making sure that uh, we have that, you know, we, get, we hold to our standards of fitness and weight that we think are optimal across the board here. That's why I'd make the point, right? This is also a, a family issue and, and, and a lifetime issue. So I, you know, my, my kids, when they turned 20, I asked them how much they thought they were going to weigh when they were 40. And they all thought, right, about the same as I weigh now. And when you point out that the average American is 20 to 40 pounds heavier um, at age 40 than they were at age 20, um, you, know, you ask, well, why do you think you're going to be different? What's going to be different? And it's a, comp right, a sugary soft drink a day is 150, 200 calories. That, when you stop growing, right, is where that 20 to 40 pounds can easily come from. Um, but it's also what's going on in the home, right? It's hard for one person to be fit and thin um, if everybody is heavy because the eating habits and diet in and, and the home. And if we, if, you know, if we don't focus on, and, and if we think about all of us as parents, right, our kids, um, that's also part of, and, and there's a tradition, particularly in military families, for their kids to go into military too. Um, and so it, it, in addition to, um, you know, thinking about the, the pool of the workforce, if we don't help people throughout the course of their lives about eating right, um, we're not going to solve this. Well, it's a great point. The, uh, I remember well um, my last tour of duty at Paris Island when I had to take that physical fitness test every six months. And uh, the first thing you do is hop on a scale. Yeah. It didn't matter how old you were, you're hopping on that scale. And, and they have height weight standards that were uh, across the board the same, didn't matter for your age, they varied a little bit by gender, but um, 
they had those strict standards on that. But the fitness standards were adjusted a little bit by age, but the weight standards were not. You weren't, you weren't allowed to gain 40 more pounds just because you're 40 years old. Uh, at least that's what I saw. Steve, same thing. Yeah, no, we, in fact, in one of my jobs, I was responsible for the weight control program. <laughs> so, and we tried to figure out all the different ways of, the, the weight may be the same, but how much of it is fat. We set up standards for what your fat percentage can be. <coughs> so, I mean, it's a, and so it's basically everything we're doing. So we have a twice a year physical fitness test, and then we also get weighed and close to the point that you were overweight, you got Yeah. i just make a, a practical point of, in addition to doing things that we can as a society to help people um, not become obese or um, lose weight if they are, um, there's also a strategy around how do we increase the pool of people from whom we recruit from. Um, and I make this point as a practical point, not as a political point, um, but there are plenty of people who love this country who are not citizens. Um, there are plenty of people in groups that may have felt discriminated against um, from a standpoint of how they're viewed in the service, and I'll point out you know, the LGBTQ community. Um, if, in terms of if we, if we want to have a large and secure, a large pool of people from whom to recruit, um, we should consider everybody who loves this country who otherwise meets the standards. Glenn, I couldn't agree more, and uh, of course we've seen some changes in all those aspects yeah. in the last 10 years. Absolutely. Um, we've had more dramatic ones over the last 30 or 40, uh, certainly with the Don't Ask, Don't Tell program, and then and now the LGBT part of it. And I, I think, you talk to pretty much any recruiter, if that young man and woman is qualified for all the reasons I explained, uh, they want to enlist them. And it doesn't matter what their persuasion is or uh, what their religious belief is, or in the case of immigrants, if they're legal immigrants here on a green card and they want to serve, uh, they, sh they should be able to enlist. I, I think, it, it, and you mentioned this topic to me earlier, that there is, when you hear the current administration talk about the immigration, the immigrants, and uh, the horrible impact they're having on this country, uh, I feel kind of just the opposite, that those who enlist uh, who are qualified, they got to meet all the same standards that any other young man and woman has to. So they're qualified in that perspective. They're not here illegally, they're here legally. Um, so that's a, that's a distinction that the, the administration doesn't, doesn't advertise here. And they, and they serve well. And of course, one of the big advantages to that program is if you complete a, a, an enlistment, you can become a United States citizen. So there's, there's a pretty big motivator in my book there. And I, and I would, my personal experience with them is they become pretty, pretty good citizens and pretty good soldiers, airmen, soldiers, sailors, and Marines. So uh, yeah, you're right, there's a pool of people there that if you've limited yourself, you're restricting that recruiter from making his quota, you're hurting our national security, we're not enlisting those who could potentially be very good citizens and very good soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really good point. I think kind of the, also, I mean, I think we've got to be, um, look at Diet issues were very important for the soldiers and the families and so forth. Now they look at the junior ROTC, that we need to bring a lot of the physical fitness programs back into the high school. Um, you know, a lot of the schools we've got in this area, you know, have you know physical fitness gym, you know, that's two times a week. I don't think that's a. Um, I think that when we were growing up, it was a daily. Environment, uh, and you also could play sports uh, and not have to do like a lot of young people now pick the sport they're going to play at 13. Uh, I think it's a, I think it really adds a lot to the mentality of these young folks. Uh, I think they feel better, uh, and it gives them an opportunity. There are a lot of young people. We, I saw this over my uh, many years in the army. There are a lot of young people at 18. be able to mature in every way and to come into the military and uh, be with a whole, another group of young people and get some skills, get some confidence and feel physically fit and healthy is a great thing to do for them. Then they can come out and then they can, 
after a first enlistment go back and go to college or you know get a get a trade do what they want to do. I think we need to be able to make that available to everybody. I think it helps the country at large. It makes uh, again all our communities. It's a public health issue, and uh, in that the military is a microcosm of the country at large. You do something here, and I think that we'll see it will cascade. I, I'll, I'll make one piggyback comment on that, and it, it begs to the point that uh, um, today's average soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is, is a cut above our general populace. And you could say, why is that? Well, right off the top, 99% of them are diplomat high school graduates. So today's general population, only 75% are diplomat high school graduates. So you've already cut out 25% that, that they're part you know, these are part of that 75 and not their 25, so they're smarter, they're, they're more physically fit, uh, just to get in and get past that initial uh, inventory strength test. Um, these, are, these are really good young men and women that are serving today, but they're faced with a challenge. And, and Glenn, you mentioned that the Fitbit thing, the Marine Corps has just instituted a program where they're going to issue Fitbits, not to everybody, but it'll be all the physical trainers that they've got. Uh, and I've got friends in my advanced age that are, you know, doing their 20,000 steps and that whole routine, which is, but that, that's a good thing. You know, I would hope that that would at least contribute a little bit to, to their fitness side of the house. And, and I would love to have them tracking that on their iPhone and, and using, using that on a daily basis to say, did I get my 60 minutes of exercise in today? Uh, it applies just as much as it does to a high school student as it does to your um, sergeant major or general as well. Uh, with that, I'd like to open up to any questions or comments you might want to have. We, we've, we've got a nice small audience here so we can have a conversation. I've got a, uh, a microphone here, and if you could just identify, uh, raise your hand, we'll deliver the mic. If you could tell us who you are and an affiliation and, and a fairly short question, I'd appreciate it. And we've got one right here up front, I see. So she's bringing a mic over to you. Oh, <laughs> we'll get you next. So that's a quick question. So uh, my name is Mark Jorgensen. I'm with uh, the company Control Risks. Um, you with who? Control Risks. Um, so I, I just had a question um, for the gentleman in the middle. It's a little hot. Um, what were some of the, um, you said there were some disasters or some problems with the period from 1975 to 1982 in the recruitment practices? Uh, I was just curious, what were some examples of some of those problems. That if you can't answer that, I can. So I'll, I'll lateral you first, Steve. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's what you already alluded to, so maybe you can fill it in. I mean, we brought in people with real serious mental health problems um, that had one way or another been covered up. I mean, they'd had, uh, in, including times that they'd been treated that had and been in, in psychiatric hospitals, uh, real serious drug problems with criminal histories, um, uh, I'll tell you, uh, not an un uh, a vignette, and it happened with the, in fact, the incident with the shooter for Heather, Heather Heyer. Uh, we had recruiters, this was really in the extreme, uh, we had recruiters that would go to young people who had obvious psychotic disorders, or schizophrenic, uh, would advise them to go off their medication because the medicine can, in fact, still be effective for about six weeks after you've stopped it. It's stored in the fat. They would pass all the recruitments, and then they would, once they're up, they were on active duty, they'd have a psychotic episode, and you just weren't sure what happened. I had, unfortunately, more than one of those cases that popped up for me in, into the 1980s when I was at, at Fort Hood. So we had a lot, a lot of problems. Now, the... This issue of fitness and what we were going to do in the volunteer army, we had a, a really in the army a, a really great Prussian general named General Max Thurman. And as the two-star, he was head of recruiting command. And then he became three-star head of personnel, and then four-star became vice chief of staff, and he then retired uh, as the Southcom commander and ran the um, Just Cause operation. And General Thurman, who's one of my mentors, really tracked all the, the connections of fitness and uh, mental health of the people and how we were going to handle stress. He said, all these are really related. 
and we came to sort of the core sense of what's the strength of our of our soldiers and young officers said we've got to deal with these things up front and it made a huge difference it really was that that strategy and his capability to think of this broadly that I think made that whole period of what we call the Reagan buildup successful and why we got a very, very strong Army and a very strong Marine Corps. I, I'll give you an anecdotal story, and I don't like telling this story, but you can Google it for sure. There was a private named McClure in 1975 that was recruited, and I was running a company at, of recruits down at the Recruit Depot in San Diego. The recruiter who recruited this young lad uh, fabricated his ASVAB test. Uh, he was mentally um, retarded. He, wasn't, he was mildly retarded and uh, got him into boot camp, didn't like it, uh, refused to train. They put him in a pugilistic uh, pit to fight with other recruits, which, which we did safely and routinely, except they didn't do it safely and routinely in his case and he got a subdural hematoma, ended up dying three months later. That was the tipping point. And uh, at, at that juncture, of course, uh, headquarters stepped in, DOD stepped in, and Congress stepped in. And uh, the ultimate result was, Congress said, you either reform boot camp in your recruiting practice or we'll dissolve the Marine Corps. And it was that serious. It really was that serious. And overnight, everything changed when I was down in recruit training. We doubled the amount of officers and supervision. We uh, doubled the training that the drill instructor was going through. We increased the standards on, on recruiting to bring them in. We, we increased the supervision of the recruiters. I mean, it was a, it was a watershed moment, as, as you mentioned, for the Marines, for sure, uh, and totally revamped our recruiting side of the house and recruit training. And it, and it, and then it's lasted forever. So those were, those were, that was a really bad time for us. And one last anecdotal story, when I was a company commander in 1976 or so, I had roughly 500 recruits for each company that I had. Our non-judicial punishment rate varied, but uh, it was somewhere between 20 and 50%. And non-judicial punishment, if you're not familiar, if they do an infraction of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it doesn't warrant a court-martial but it still warrants disciplinary action, You, what we call NJP of them. What I'm talking about for NJP, it goes on your record, you, and just to give an example, assault, uh, uh, profanity, uh, theft, absent without leave, th those, are, those are what constitutes something you would prosecute on NJP. When we had 30 or 40% of recruits in a company doing these types of things, it was horrendous. Today, your NJP rate for a company might be might be one or two maybe um, I, they're 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 kids who just are morally and mentally and physically better than what we had in 1975 so it's been a dramatic increase does that answer your question a long way about going this young man over here had a had a question and while we're doing that let me just you can speak. I, I don't know how many of you can imagine uh, the pressure on these recruiters oh. I mean, of, of in, in my practice world as a psychiatrist, uh, you know, I've, these men and women who are in recruiting, to me, I think have really, uh, in, they're, they're in a real pressure cooker. And it's really, really hard. And I think that uh, uh, they've got quotas and they've got other standards they've got to meet. And I think knowing that the pool that they're, that they're going out to is, you know, is as good as it can be, it, it helps everybody. Yes, sir. Herb Rose, um, I'm wondering during those periods when you found it difficult to find enough enlistees, uh, and more recently uh, as obesity has increased, has there been a corresponding decrease in the uh, standards for boot camp lessening the uh, requirements of, uh, or the rigor in which uh, the enlistees were exposed to? It's a great question. I, I can uh, answer I it from a Marine perspective. Yeah. The, uh, uh, and the short answer is no. The, uh, uh, they've learned their lesson here that if you relax those standards and you enlist those who don't meet the standard that you already have, the quality of the force decreases. And, and as General Wilson said during the 
McClure era. He said, if we have to reduce the size of the force to increase the quality, then that's what we're going to do. So we're going to keep the standard the way it is. Now, you may be familiar with some of the talk that's going around lately that there are certain specialties that perhaps don't require such a high level of physical fitness. Um, and it's been bannered about, about changing the, phys the fitness standards by specialty that are coming in, and, and I'm, I'm not sure where that stands today. Uh, in other words, not just having the same fitness standard for everybody, vary it by the specialty they're coming into. An example, for instance, an artilleryman has to be able to lift a 155 millimeter shell, which weighs about 100 pounds, um, just to get it into the cannon. Um, and if you can't meet that standard, you're probably not going to be an artilleryman. But that person has probably already met the bare minimum standard to come into the, in the Marine Corps, at least. Uh, so they might have a different standard for artillery, whereas the, the young person who's going to be a, a computer technician that need to lift a 100-pound artillery shell, so maybe they don't have to do three dead-end pull-ups. Uh, I'm not sure where that stands today. Uh, I know they're, they're, they're looking at that pretty hard. Steve, any comments on the Army side? Or? Um, I don't, what I hear is that in the basic training, the AIT, or the, 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 that has not necessarily, those standards haven't been relaxed. Um, but as I was telling you, when I do meet with squad leaders, uh, they're still finding that, you know, even though you've got eight weeks that these, that these young men and women have gone through that first phase of training, they still need a lot of training after that during this first year. I mean, they were, for a long while, they were coming out of training, they were going to a unit, and then those units would deploy about, you know, 12 to 15 months after they had enlisted. And, uh, and it's been, and they find that there are some challenges in, in doing that. They won't relax them because, you know, they're going into combat. And, uh, but it's tough. I mean, what, it's tough to be able to also make sure that these people are physically fit, and it, it really adds to the time that these squad leaders have to spend on the job. As a, as a side note on this, there, at one time in the Marines, there was a bit of a stigma associated with officers being assigned on the recruiting side, on the recruit, recruiting side of the house. And, uh, and that existed in the mid-'70s and early-'80s, but the way they fixed that was they decided they'd have a, a selection board just like you would have for promotion but to select those who were going to command recruiting stations, which is a major, for a major, a major's job. There, we had uh, roughly, I think, 35 or 40 recruiting stations. Uh, and, they, and they would sit down and pick the best of the best that they get. And I'm digging, this, my memory might be a little dull on this, but I think Jim Mattis was the CEO of the recruiting station in Portland, Oregon, just to give you an example. So what happened then was it got flipped. Officers began to say, uh-oh, I want to be the guy selected to command a recruiting station because those are the, those are the guys who are selective and they're going to get promoted to lieutenant colonel and colonel faster. And, it, and it, that has existed till today, that you will see many of our flag officers today have had uh, a recruiting station job or in, in some cases a recruit, recruit command job uh, at both boot camps. And we have a question right here. Hi, Max Stalberg. Um, so right now, the key words and priorities of the Secretary are readiness and lethality, and particularly with the nut to crack of non-deployability. In your experience and in researching this, have you seen any evidence in terms of programs to improve uh, the weight and health of recruits uh, before they are recruited to impact non-deployability in the long run? Yeah, Max, absolutely. And I mentioned earlier that the uh, the recruiting substations, the recruiter himself, uh, when he gets a young man or woman in there who doesn't make the standard, of course they're going to encourage them to improve themselves to make the standard. And they will oftentimes run their own fitness program uh, there. And, and that's common, I think, across the board with all the services. They'll have some kind of physical fitness program. It's kind of an addendum, but, but they can't be spending all their time running a fitness program for the kids in the local community. That, that, that's more the job of the high school. or the, That's why I hearken to the JROTC side of the house. Although, uh, doctor, you're right that, that it ought to be in the PT physical fitness programs of the high schools that they ought to be doing it every day and not just three times a day or two, three times a week or two times a week. But yes, the recruiters are 
are well familiar with that. They're not going to give up on that young lad. I, I, and I was a little bit facetious when I talked about the young lad came in the Marine Corps said, you know, get back here when you can do two pull-ups. They'll let him get on the bar and see how well they did. And if the guy can't, the guy can't even do any pull-ups, which is not uncommon, by the way, they'll say, okay, here's a fitness program you can start with and gradual and go, and, and we'll work with you as long as you have the motivation to do it. Um, and then, and there, there are stories out there of, of young men and women who've lost hundreds of pounds, in some cases over years, who eventually met the standard and, and came in. They're, they're not that common, but there are those out there, which, uh, which is a credit to the recruiter who hung with them. So yes, there are, the, there are programs like that that exist. Then answer your question. Okay. Any others? Yes, sir. Ah, Canada. Yeah. Thank you. A very interesting topic, actually. I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Curry. I'm the Defense Health Attaché, also occupational and sport medicine physician. Uh, Canada, of course, has very similar issues. Uh, we've seen our obesity rates jump from about 22% to over 26% just in the general forces over about the last eight years. Um, I think you would agree though that we're nowhere close to seeing like the top of the peak of this issue. Um, and you'd, someone had already mentioned that um, within the family you're going to have another generation of people who are overweight or obese. So looking into the future, more of a strategic aspect of things, um, how do you see um, trying to crack the nut of the problem with your recruiting? Um, because uh, although your, your paper very well done, a lot of the, the solutions are, are relatively old. You know, nutrition um, should uh, introduce PT programs into schools. So, for example, my, my daughter, who's a rock climber, she can do 11 pull-ups, by the way. Good for her. Um, so she has PT, or physical uh, activity, twice a week. Twice and, a week. And we'd mentioned when I was growing up, uh, the teachers ran the programs. My science teacher was my football coach. Uh, we played every day. Uh, we were off on weekends. Now you're kind of forced to get into a structured sport program, which uh, isn't uh, the best thing for a lot of kids. They don't like the competition. So they're at home playing video games. So now jump another generation. How, how do you deal with this problem? Yeah, it's, well, I'm probably going to lateral to the far end first to Dr. Stedman. Yeah, I, I would say, well, you know, the idea of nutrition is probably an old one. Um, if you go to most schools today and look at what they're serving, they're still not serving low carb, low sugar. Um, so changing, changing what's in the cafeteria, changing how what it's displayed, um, and then I would also say that a large swath of the population um, from which the military recruits is urban and poor. Um, and many of those people live in food deserts, right, in terms of access. You know, they don't have the fresh vegetables and, you know, access to as many choices as, as, as wealthier parts of America. And, uh, you know, I can't say I know exactly what the solution is, but I think that the military does have money and resources to create innovative programs and experiment and try, but they have to do things differently as it relates to access to the types of food that should, people should be eating that is not, it's less likely to have them put on calories in conjunction with fitness programs. But I, I think that we're only at the, right, if you, if you have progressive cities that are taxing high calorie drinks, right? It's not popular, but they're doing it because they want to encourage people to get water or low calorie drinks, which is much healthier and what people need if they don't want to gain weight from empty calories. So I think this is excellent. I think you've asked the kind of hard question that uh, we really need to pay attention to. I'll, I'll paint it this way. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the politics in your country as I'm not sure I'm familiar with the politics in my country. <laughs> <laughs> But, right, we've, we've, you can swing from, look, there's, there's a government, we need government policy, we need direction, leadership, to no, no, it's all individualism, leave it alone. 
And uh, uh, it's hard to tell what people are willing to accept in terms of that strategic leadership. Um, we've got a number of these issues like this that in school we understand are important. Uh, we, we've tried them in ways. We need to continue to bang away and to continue to do that. Uh, but we've got, you know, I think their, their effect uh, as, as we've seen has, you know, it's marginal at times. Sometimes it can have a profound effect. Uh, I think what we might want to think about, and I say this with some caution, is there, there really are now means of using social media to get messages out. They've been used more as a way to, uh, in fact, threaten our security, and they've been used very effectively. They may be used in ways to influence elections, but I do think that we as physicians, as public health people, need to step up and uh, be able to design ways to use now these techniques and capabilities in a way that are beneficial to society. That's you know, is that Orwellian? Uh, does that mean that we're going to do things that might be harmful? Uh, I think we have to face what those ethical implications are. But if we're going to do something about this, and I think it's a serious public health problem for us, I think if, from the general cost of medicine to the general health in our population to the readiness of our military, that we need folks who are going to step up and think about how to do this in a smart way. Yeah, you used a great word, which is design, right? Nobody wants to become obese. Nobody designed our society to make people obese. Um, but we have food policy, and we have marketing, and we, and, and right, we as human beings are wired to like things that are sweet. We like our bread. We like our um, cookies, right? So. This is you know, natural human behavior, and so how do you design our society in a way that, or, or, or how we live, or how our kids are exposed to things, that makes it easy to make good choices and just a little bit harder to make bad choices. It's not about taking choices away about what you eat, um, but gentle nudges for the right reasons, and it's possible. You know, uh, and I'll close on this note. Uh, you raise a great point, and it, begs to the founding of the American Security Project when uh, then Senator Kerry in particular, but certainly uh, Hegel as well, uh, said, geez, how come we keep talking about this but nobody listens and nobody cares? So they said, let's get eight military guys, very senior, and maybe the people will listen to them. Not that the eight military guys are holier than thou or uh, self-righteous, but in the case of us two, for instance, 35 years in military service, we're still in pretty good shape. We had the same requirements. We, we adhered to those requirements for those 35 years. So those representatives can stand up and say, here's what it did for me, and here's what it ought to be doing for you. And maybe that message would come across if it was getting across with people like Tony Zinni or Fallon or, or Jim Mattis, um, for instance. And so that's why they, they that's why ASP used them as spokesmen, and that's why your position is particularly important, I think, because you're obviously a senior uh, Army officer in Canada, and you, can, and you look good. Hey, it works for me. It ought to be working in your schools and systems, but, but we can't man the force if we don't have kids that can conform to the uh, rules and regulations of our service, in, on the, particularly on the obesity side of the house. And, and your daughter's a prime example. She's in great shape. In her own school, they only do PT twice a week. I mean, she's probably, I bet she works out every day, at least. And yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> she's, these days, I hate to say it, the exception to the, to the yeah, general. So I guess the question is, right, one way to think about this is, why shouldn't everybody have better willpower? Why shouldn't everybody be um, more capable of, you know, being regimented and have exercise routine as opposed to, Maybe there's a percentage of our society who is just less susceptible to temptation, 
That's how they are wired. It's in their genetics. Um, and we have a society and a culture that has lots of things that are tempting. Um, and I just go back to the design. If you can remove some of that temptation, um, maybe those people will do better as opposed to can we you know, change how they're innately wired and, and, and get them to be um, more anal, for a lack of a better word. <laughs> well, we've reached the witching hour here. I want, I want to thank a number of people, certainly Matthew Wallen, who's our, who helped set this up. He's my fellow for public diplomacy as well as office manager and runs these meetings. And uh, Esther, appreciate you coming. Our interns, our new interns are in the back, so they helped put this together. This is a new space for us. We just moved here in June, so this is the second event we held. Uh, please hit us up on our website for all our events that we have upcoming. Uh, we sign up for In Case You Missed It, which we put out every day. Uh, it's just a short compilation of relevant articles that, that you might have missed, similar to what we talked about today. And, and I want to give a round of applause to our other two panelists here, Dr. Stetton and Dr. Zanakis. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.